Thank you so much, team, for leading us this morning. And if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, and we're going to start in verse 18. And uh, picking up where we left off in the Word last week and jumping back into John 15 and verse 18. And our theme around the Word this morning is when truth and hate collide. When truth and hate collide. A few years ago, me and some buddies of mine, uh, when we were still living down in Central Florida at the time, we had this great idea that we would all do an, an obstacle run together, like a mud run together. Uh, and just curious, has anybody ever done one of those mud run, obstacle run? All right, Spartan race, Tough Mudder, there's like all kinds of different uh, mud races out there. Uh, and so we thought it would be fun. And, and in Florida, it is true, a lot of the times it is warm and a lot of times the sun shines. Uh, but in the winter, there are like at least one or two nights where it gets kind of cold. And, and so the reason I say that is because it was in February that we decided to do this race. And it just happened to be the morning after one of these really cold nights down there. And so we got to the race and we didn't really know what we were signing up for, but it just sounded fun, right? So we went, we get there and they, they send people out like in, in, um, in heat. So as we were coming up, it wasn't our time yet, but we would go and we watch others go. And as we're getting closer, we notice that people are jumping into this thing, swimming through this thing, and then getting out on the other side of the thing. And as we're getting a little closer, we're like, what is that? And we get a little bit closer and we notice that it is a swimming pool of ice water. And so the very first obstacle that you go through is you jump in the pool of ice water, you swim to the other side, and then you get out and you start the whole course with frostbite, basically, is, is how that all works. And, and I remember in that moment just being like, I thought we would have some kind of crazy stuff to do, but when I was there in the moment, I didn't have swimming through a swimming pool and ice water on one of those cold nights in mind. All that to say, I had an idea, but I never really knew what we would walk into. And the reason I share that is because where we are in the text in John 15 is that Jesus has been preparing his disciples all along for this hour that we're reading about. That his ministry for about three and a half years with his disciples, he was pouring into them, pouring truth into them, preparing them for this hour when he would no longer physically be with them. And yet he's going to give them a a, a heads up, as we see in the text, a heads up on what to expect. Like, I'm sure in some ways they understand through repenting of their sin and trusting in King Jesus to be Lord of their life as they follow Him that there will be times of challenge and struggle and perhaps even suffering. And this is what Jesus is doing. He is, he is uh, just reaffirming this understanding that to follow Him and to obey Him, you will find yourself oftentimes understanding what this narrow path can look like. How, as Jesus even told us, that few are on it, this narrow path that leads to life, but wide is the path that leads to destruction. And so He's preparing them because they are absolutely going to face challenge. And uh, they're, they're going to encounter even hostility the world against them and against the truth of the word. 
And so as Jesus is with his 11 disciples, just for context, we're in John 15. It's the final week of earthly ministry for Christ. It's the final Thursday evening before Good Friday. He's been up in the upper room. He's instituted the Lord's Supper. He's washed their feet. Judas has left. And now he's with these 11 disciples. And he came to this place where he says, it's time to go. Arise, let's go. And so we're reading, we're reading somewhere between arise, let's go. And they're exiting the upper room. We know Jesus will make his way through Jerusalem. He will, he will walk across the Kidron Valley, which sits just to the eastern side of the Temple Mount. And then this mountain that is just on the other side of the Temple Mount is the Mount of Olives. And it's there that the Garden of Gethsemane is there. And that's the place of crushing. That's where Christ will go and he will pray. And ultimately, he'll be turned over to the mob. And so we're somewhere between it's time to go and before the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's walking with them and he's continuing to pour truth into their lives. And we're going to see Christ equip his followers with what happens when truth and hate collide because it will. Because it will, the main idea this morning is that Christ helps his disciples prepare for opposition to his truth. And so in Jesus's grace and truth way, he's going to pour into his disciples this truth that they need to understand. And I'll just say this, I want to put like a disclaimer before we get into the text, and that is this. There's another sermon that we need to teach that's, going to, that's really, really important, and that is how to share truth, right? Because there is a, I think all of us have found those times where um, sometimes how you say uh, and when you say allow that message of whatever it is to travel either in a receptive path or an unreceptive path. But again, that's another message. How to share truth is another message. Jesus is grace and he's truth. And so here we're going to see specifically as it relates to truth. He doesn't want his disciples to be caught off guard, to be surprised when they encounter what he's about to tell them about. And so as a follower of Christ, I can expect opposition. I can expect opposition. Look at John 15 verse 18. And the Bible says this, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. Because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. So the word of God is to, to there's not even the words to articulate the gift that the scriptures are to us. This is God's word of truth that he has gifted us with inspired by him, breathed out by him, the word of truth, profitable for all things, sharper than any double-edged sword. The word of God is such a blessing. It's the voice of God into our 
lives. It's been described as God's love letter to His creation because it walks us through this grand story of how God has pursued His creation and made a way for His creation to be forgiven, to experience grace and mercy and peace and have everlasting life. God's truth is an incredible gift, but we also understand that truth, when shared, can be challenging to hear and can be challenging to listen to, especially as the word of truth exposes sin in our lives. I mean, I've never met anybody. I'm thinking all of us, none of us are like, hey, let's get together and let's talk about all the ways I'm not honoring God with my life. Can we do that? Let's have a, let's have a community time and let's just talk about each other's sin. You call me out. I'll call you out. Like, let's, let's do that. Why? Because truth can be difficult and truth does expose into a hardened heart who is cold to the truth of God's word. It can create a, an, an opposition that is unique and tangible and even one that Christ has, has, has told us about. The word of truth can be offensive at times. And so in verse 23, Jesus says, whoever hates me hates my father also. And if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. Again, it's the word of truth that exposes our sin, that exposes our need for forgiveness, that exposes our need for a savior and to a heart that is hardened and prideful and 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 refuses to see a need for any type of help, that the word, again, can be offensive, but the word is a gift. The word is a gift to our lives. In verse 25, the Bible says, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled, that they hated me without cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Jesus is reaffirming and bringing back to the forefront a promise that he had just mentioned to them what feels like just a couple minutes ago. Because Jesus tells them, I'm going to pray for you. And I'm going to ask the Father to send another helper. If you dig into that language, you understand that word another to mean one of the same kind. And what he's saying is I'm going to send myself, my Holy Spirit, the Spirit of, of, of truth. And the Holy Spirit is going to indwell you. The Holy Spirit is going to comfort you. The Holy Spirit is going to lead and empower us to live a life that honors and glorifies him. If we look over in Acts chapter 1, Jesus is ascending into heaven, the right hand of the Father. He's going to return again. But he told his disciples, he told them, he sent them into Jerusalem for a prayer meeting. And he again, he promised them he's going to send the Spirit. And he tells them that the Spirit will empower them to be a witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So what does a witness do? A witness testifies of truth. If somebody's being called to the witness stand, they are being brought to the stand under oath to speak truthfully about what has happened. 
As a believer in the Lord Jesus, we have been empowered by the Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth, to speak and witness to the truth that we have in Scripture. In verse 16, Jesus said, I have said all of these things to keep you from falling away. So I'm giving you a heads up so you won't fall away. That falling away is not in any way speaking of somehow losing their relationship with Jesus or losing their salvation. The scriptures are clear that all of those who repent of their sin and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior of their lives are saved. That no one can snatch a believer out of the hand of Christ. There is security. I'm so thankful that I lay down my head at night and rest that I am his and he is mine. But that, that falling away is actually speaking of almost like a trap that's set to ensnare an animal. In other words, he's preparing them because the word is going to be hostile to the truth. The word's going to be hostile to the truth in such a way, I'm letting you know this, I'm preparing you, but I'm telling you this so you will not get trapped. I'm sharing this with you so you will not become discouraged. I'm sharing this because the hostility is going to ramp up and it's going to be really easy to just want to kind of, to just cower back and just kind of like quietly hold the truth while the world desperately needs the truth. He's preparing them. He's preparing them. Jesus has not warned them or has warned them that the persecution that was going to come because he didn't want them to be disillusioned by what it means to follow Jesus. He wants them to understand that opposition will come. Verse 2, he tells them they will put you out of the synagogue. Now, I read this, it's possible to read this as a, as a line in the Bible and just kind of keep reading, but this is a significant truth about what's going to happen in their lives because the synagogue, them being kicked out of synagogue was more than just not being able to go to a worship service. This was their being excommunicated. This is them being cut off from everything they know, all their religious, social, and economic aspects of Jewish society, they would be branded as a traitor. And that the consequences is they would potentially lose their friends and even their family. They're going to lose what is central to them and to what they've known and experienced all of their life. He's preparing them. You're going to, they will put you out of the synagogues. And then he says, indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering a service to God. I want, to, I want to read that one more time. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. They're having a conversation from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane. And along the way, Jesus is telling them, you will be killed for following me. You will lose your life for following me. There's going to come a time when whoever kills you, they're actually going to think they're doing a good thing and that they're worshiping God when they kill you. He's preparing them for them losing their lives and laying their lives down. Jesus never sugarcoated true discipleship. He never presents this, everything is going to be great and nothing ever broken is going to happen. And it's actually just the opposite. He's preparing them to lay down their lives for the gospel. And Jesus, the same holds true for believers today. 
Luke 9, verse 23, 24 says, If anyone, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. He's, he's, he's telling them, You're going to follow me. The world will be hostile toward you, there will be suffering. There will be a point when you will die for following me. That if anyone is going to follow me, let them take up their cross, this object of, 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 of torture and sacrifice, and follow me. In chapter 16, verse 3, he says, And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. And I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. I was with you. Jesus had protected them from so much. He had protected them from so much. I'm just curious, anybody grow up with like a, 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 a big brother, like bigger, stronger than you are? Just curious, anybody? I see a few hands, okay. Um, I, know, I had an older sister, not a big brother, but... Um, you remember how safe you are as long as big brother's there? <laughs> like, nobody's going to say anything to you because of who your brother is, right? They, they, they like, 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 it's all good. You feel protected. You don't have to worry about anything. In a lot of ways, Jesus has been that protection. All of the animosity, yes, they've received some, but Jesus has been the focus of their hostility and animosity. And now Christ will no longer physically be with them. And so he's preparing the world that's been so hostile to me. That hostility is going to turn to you because I'm no longer physically going to be with you anymore. And so the Lord is preparing them again to face a hostility to the truth. Now, I am not trying to draw apples and apples from first century Jerusalem to the 21st century olive branch, uh, Mississippi. But I think we, we understand that as long as there's been sin, there has been evil present and at work in this world, and that there is an enemy who is looking to steal, kill, and destroy, prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. We look around, we understand and see there's a spiritual war and it is also true that it is very easy to open the news or read the news on your feed or just look around just for a little while and you see what feels like this mounting, secular, um, immoral, um, hostile to the truth of God's word perspective on life. And as we walk through this, we see that there is war on unborn, innocent life. We see there is war on biology that God has created them male and female. He created them. We see this language like deconstructionism, which in its simplest terms, I would describe as a rejection of absolute truth. And my heart, no, my heart was saying this, but, but to say that there is no absolute truth for someone to say that there is no absolute truth. The question in the right way is, is, well, are you saying that that is absolutely true, that there's no absolute truth? Because if you're saying it's absolutely true, that there's no absolute truth, there's actually, you're saying that's an absolute truth. 
And and I say that in a in a and I'm not saying that in a in a in a in a mean spirited heart. I just mean at some point it just runs around in circles. And that truth can be known, and God is the author of truth. And here Christ again is warning and helping his disciples understand that the world's going to be more and more hostile. More and more hostile. That Jesus is truth. His word is truth. The disciples were clinging to the truth. And the world is rejecting the disciples. So they are rejecting him. And the same is true today. That as disciples we cling to the truth. We hold to the truth. We live according to the truth. We stand on the truth. And when we do, the world is going to be hostile toward that truth. Why? Because sin expo- or excuse me, truth exposes sin. And truth is God's gift to us as that author of truth revealing our need for Him. And He's the only one who can meet and satisfy our deepest need for forgiveness and peace with a holy God. And so may we cling, may we stand. And sharing truth is not always easy, but it's always right. Again, grace and truth. Truth and grace. You get those off balance? If it's all truth and no grace? I'm just curious, how many respond well to that? All grace, no truth? You'll be great friends. But grace and truth. Grace and truth. Jesus is both and He's called us to share the greatest news ever. In grace and truth. And there will be a temptation to waver. I think about... Uh, just the different stages of life from being a, a, a teenager, a preteen, adolescent, teenager, young adult, as we grow and mature, like we see what can be almost feel like a pressure cooker sometimes to stand for truth and to stand for the Lord. And there can be a, a challenge, like Christ says, that it can feel like a trap and this falling away. But Christ is like, no, that's why he's given us the gift of the Holy Spirit. And notice that he says all of this. Just after he told them, like the world's going to be hostile, they're going to hate you, they're going to kill you. He, 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 he is speaking truth, but he just told them, abide in me and I in you, my word in you, and you will bear much fruit. He's showing us that we must remain connected to stand for truth for him. And so this call to follow Christ was a call to die, and it still is. And Christ does not offer his followers the way of comfort and ease, but he absolutely gives us the path to life and life to the full. Because he's worthy. He's worthy. He's worthy. And so I can expect opposition and a second observation. I can know the Holy Spirit is at work revealing truth in the world and in me. So we're going to face opposition, but what we can also know is God is always working. He's always Always at work. John 16, verse 5, Jesus says, But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. To which I just picture the disciples just raising their hand and saying, uh, Jesus, I, I don't think it's to our advantage that you go away. I think, I think it's to our advantage that you stay. And you stay really, really close, and us stay really, really close to you. And we just keep, this is all working really good right now. But Jesus saying, no, there's a hostility that's coming, but it's, it's better that I 
am not with you. It's better that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. He's promising the Holy Spirit that will not just be with them, but will indwell them. The Holy Spirit who, who will be for us in us that love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control that He will indwell us, will reveal and guide the truth and will empower us to cling to truth and to share that truth in grace and truth. But He then goes in and He talks a little bit about the role and the work of the Holy Spirit and first of all, revealing sin. In verse 8, the Bible says, and when He comes... He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe. He's going to convict the world and convince the world that Christ is the Messiah, that only life is found in Christ. And the Holy Spirit ministers to the believer in many ways, but is also at work in the unbelieving unbelieving world through the gift of conviction. Conviction is such a gift. Conviction is that sense that we're not honoring God in a certain way and that we know this is not God's design for our lives. And in His grace, He graces us with conviction. And it is this loving way to guide us back to Him and to honor Him with our lives. Conviction is a gift. And yet the Holy Spirit is at, is at work convicting the world of sin and need for a Savior. Conviction shows us that we're sinners in need of a Savior. The Bible says He will convict the world concerning sin because they do not believe in Me. That the sole issue that determines a person's eternal destiny is how they react to the Spirit's convicting ministry concerning their sin and the provision of forgiveness. That there are two responses to the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. One is to refuse and reject, and one is to repent and to receive. And there's this, this reaction, this response that all of us have in light of the truth, and the Spirit of God is showing us. This is why it's such an encouragement to know that like, in the power of the Holy Spirit, we share as witnesses of the truth the greatest news that's ever been shared that we share that truth, but we don't go around and, and us save people. We share in God's power the truth of the gospel. And we're like Christ talks about, we're like kind of spreading seed on soil. Like unless you just live there and you know the dirt, like you don't know if it's good soil, bad soil, rocky soil, weedy soil. Like you're like we share, but yet the Holy Spirit works the spirit of truth with the word of truth. And then the Word, the Holy Spirit works that conviction ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so the Word, the, the, the Word of truth, the Holy Spirit with the Word of truth, cuts to the heart. I love over in Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching and the power of the Holy Spirit. And everybody's there. And in Acts 2.37, he just has preached the gospel. And the people who were listening said this in Acts 2 verse 37. Now, when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized. Repent, be baptized. What happened before that? They were cut to the heart. What is cut to the heart? 
They were convicted of their sin and their need for a Savior. And they knew they had to respond to the grace and love of God in their hearts. The Holy Spirit convicts and reveals sin, also revealing righteousness. The Spirit of God points us to where true righteousness is found. In verse 8, the Bible says, And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. So not only does the Holy Spirit in a gracious blessing bring conviction over the sin of our lives, but it also reveals our need for righteousness that we can't get on our own. Like there's holy God and there's sinful man. And so many gospel conversations I've had with people are sinful man trying to figure out um, how good enough they must be to be accepted before a holy God. It's almost like you live life with a sense of scales and you just kind of like at the end, you hope your good outweighs your bad and that in the end it will just all work out. The only problem with that is unrighteousness cannot reside in the presence of holiness. And so there is a massive gap that no one can feel, no person can feel. And that's why the gospel is such good news. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.21 is so good. Because Paul, the Holy Spirit, through Paul, is telling the church that, uh, that I'm coming. It's in my heart, and I'm going to bring it. Here we go. For our sake, he made him who had no sin become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. I think of it like some of y'all, I mean, hopefully it's getting warmer, right? It's supposed to be now, but we've had some cold nights, but you put on that jacket. You put on that jacket and you put it on and you cover yourself up in it. You zip it up and you are covered. I just think of that clothed in righteousness that Christ gifts us through repentance and faith. And so the Holy Spirit reveals our sin, reveals our need for righteousness that we can't earn on our own, reveals judgment. The Spirit of God confirms in me a final day of judgment is coming. And it is in verse 8 and verse of chapter 16. And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. But the enemy will ultimately be judged and so will every other person. Every creation will be before this judgment of God. And only those clothed in His righteousness will spend eternity with Him forever and ever and ever. That there is a judgment that is coming. The Holy Spirit revealing sin, revealing righteousness, revealing judgment, and ultimately revealing the truth of Christ and His glory. The Spirit of God's primary ministry is to glorify the Son as a believer, our primary ministry is to glorify the Son, to bring glory and honor to King Jesus. Verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, 
but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, and whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Mine, therefore I said that He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit, He will God says, Christ says, He will glorify me. That this is ultimately the work of the Holy Spirit to point and reveal to the glory of Christ that as a believer, this is by His grace, we live lives in the power of the Spirit to bring glory and honor to Him because He alone is worthy. And Christ is lovingly telling His disciples to prepare because hostility is coming. So how do you stand? How do you stand in the world that we live in? How do you stand for Christ? How do you stand on the word of truth in the spirit of truth? And I want to share a picture that, that, that kind of helped me. And as we're wrapping up this morning, just kind of a, a, a picture of, of how this truth can play itself out in our lives. The past two days, I've been up in Arkansas having a blast trout fishing with a bunch of men from our church. It's been awesome. And I just want to plant a seed right now. If you're a guy and you like golf or you like fishing trout or you just like eating good food, which I think is everybody, uh, plan next year. I'm already looking forward to it. But, but anyway, we went to the North Fork River and we're the right White River up there. And if you've ever been trout fishing, you'll get in a boat. And let me just tell you, you better be ready when you unleash the, the, the rope from the dock because the moment you do, you're gone. Like, like the river just takes you. Everything goes downstream. So just as soon as you let go of the dock, you're gone. You're drifting. You need to get back there on the motor because if you don't get to the motor, you're, you're, you're good luck. <laughs> like you're, you're gone. And so we got in the boat yesterday morning and we went upriver and we went for a while and then we just cut the motor off. And uh, baited our hooks and we, we drifted uh, fishing just off the bottom as we went. And it's amazing how quickly you can drift and not even realize you're drifting. Like we're up there just fishing and, and just keep going. And, and then all of a sudden we're like, okay, it's time to power up and it's time to go back, uh, whether it's to the dock or going for lunch. And so we get back there and we crank the, the motor, and until we crank the motor and just get going, like, we're going, I'm like, oh my goodness, like, did, have we gotten this far? Have we drifted this far? And it's like, you don't even feel it. You don't even recognize it. But I see this spiritual truth in that. It's because how do believers, how do we stand on truth? How do we abide in the truth? How do we not get caught up in the current of the culture that we're in that honestly, if you're not on the motor and you're not clued in on the power source, like you won't even realize it. Like you'll blink and you'll end up three miles down the river and you're like, how did I end up here? But rather it's that intentional connection to the power source that allows you to go upstream when everything in the world is trying to pull you back. And I thought about this picture because this will be very practical for a moment. 
But Jesus had just, we just read, he's preparing them for hostility. And what did he just do before he prepared them for hostility? He said, abide in me and I in you and my word in you. And you're going to bear much fruit. How in the world do you stand? How in the world do you continue to power upstream when all of culture seems to be weighing down and pulling you down? It is absolutely essential to be connected to the power source, the Holy Spirit of God residing in our lives and being connected to His Word. I just want to say, I am a grace guy. Grace, 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 amazing grace. And in the same breath, I say this, to be a disciple, you have to have discipline. The word disciple actually comes from the word discipline. It takes discipline to be a follower of Christ. And so the encouragement is, is that we abide in Christ, disciplining ourselves to spend time in his word, that we must spend time in his word and in his truth and communing with God and the Father Why? Because if we don't, we will find ourselves not even trying, but we'll find ourselves in territory. We're like, how in the world did we get here? How in the world did we get here? And listen, I am not I'm not one of the guys, the guys that say, hey, you know, do this every day so you'll earn favor with God. No, do this every day because we need this every day. (laughs) We need God's word. We need his word. We need the voice of his word to be louder than any other voice in our lives. And so we commune with him through daily time in the word, daily time in scripture. We must discipline ourselves. It's a blessing. And then not only that, I would say community. Community. It's very true. We all do better when people are watching us, don't we? That's not why we, you know, in kind of Unrelated things like, why do you work out with somebody? Because you'll know you'll probably do a better job if there's going to be somebody there waiting on you, right? Checking in on you. How's it going? That same principle, I believe, applies to us as brothers and sisters in Christ is that we need community. We need brothers and sisters around us to share life with us, to speak grace and truth into our lives, and that we would submit and yield our hearts to receive that truth. And that when we go through tough stuff, we go through tough stuff together. When we go through celebrations, we go through celebrations together. But this, there's this family of faith, this community that we walk in with. And I just want to encourage you, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus and you're not walking in community with other, other brothers and sisters, let me encourage you to pray about that. We have um, Sunday school ministry, D groups, different kind of ministry, but just to get connected with other believers. And then the, the last thing I would say is to wake up with a sense of mission. A sense of mission. Some of us are morning people. Some of us are not morning people. <laughs> some of us are ready to tackle the day at 5 a.m. Let's go. You know, like you're ready. And some of you are like, don't even like talk to me <laughs> until about 1030 or so. Let's, let's, get, a little, let's get a little time. But, but here's the thing. Regardless of when you're at your best and how you begin your day as believers, may we, may we begin our day with a sense of mission. That God has called us to make disciples of all nations. He's called us to stand on truth and to share that truth and grace and truth. That He has invited us to live for something way bigger than ourselves. To live for His glory, to live for His mission. And to wake up and we 
begin our days by understanding we are called to mission. And that mission is carried out in our vocations and where we're plugged in and where we're connected and where we go through life. It makes going to the grocery store look a lot different. It makes going and pumping gas a lot different. It makes how you view your work relationships and your workplace a lot different. It just looks different when we wake up with a sense of mission and God's called us to mission. So I just encourage us, this, this message Jesus is talking to is 11 devoted, authentic disciples And he's preparing them for a hostile world. I'm not shocked with the state of our culture. I'm burdened for the state of our culture. But yet I know that the only hope is Jesus. And that it is through his church that he wants his truth to be known in grace and truth. And so I encourage us, believer, May we find ourselves abiding in Him. Remaining connected to Him. His voice being the loudest voice. Because we've probably all been there. There are those moments where we have, we're, we're, we have let, you know, we've tied off from the dock. And we just have kind of closed our eyes for a little bit. And then we wake up and we're like, how in the world did we get here? But God in His grace, His Holy Spirit conviction bringing us back. To show us and grace us to follow Him. And then I would also just share, if you're here and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, would you just hear loud and clear that God has created you, God loves you, and He has made a way for you to be forgiven and have peace with Him through a relationship with Him. And He would love to begin that relationship with you. Let's pray together. Father, I thank You for this Word Father, I thank you for the blessing of your truth, the gift of your truth. You're the author of truth. And God, we understand that we live in a culture that is growing, it feels more and more hostile to your truth. But God, it is your truth that is such an amazing gift. And God, we understand that your Holy Spirit is at work. And God, as we as believers are empowered by your Spirit to share your truth and grace and truth, Father, that we would stand firm and that we would stand in a way that brings glory and honor to you. And that you would use us as your hands and feet to a world that desperately, desperately needs you. Desperately needs you. God, I pray that you would find us abiding in you, connected to you. God, apart from you, you told us we can do nothing. And so God, I pray for the believer that may have found themselves Maybe in relationship with you, but not in thriving relationship with you. Not connecting and abiding in your word. And just can kind of get to this place where it's like, how did did I drift here? But God, your Holy Spirit even now would work and bring conviction in a way that brings grace and repentance. And God, to rest in your forgiveness and love and care and be restored in that right relationship with you. God, may we live in community with one another. May we live on mission for you. 
And God, that you would get all the glory. And Father, I do pray for the person who may be here living apart from a relationship with you. That God, you are the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through you. So I pray they would be reminded that through turning from sin and self and turning to you and trusting in your perfect life, your substitutionary death on the cross for our sin and your resurrection from the dead proves that you alone can make us right with you, forgive us of our sin and give us peace with you and live for your glory, for your mission. So God, I pray you work in our hearts. We love you. And we praise you. And we know that light shines brightest in the darkest. So God, may we shine as bright lights like a city on a hill for your glory. God, we love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I invite you to stand with me uh, as we have a song of response. And what pastors here would love to pray over you and for you. Uh, The altar is always open. But my invitation is this, that we would almost see our heart just with, with open hands, just asking the Holy Spirit to lead, guide, convict, and show us and give us the grace to honor Him. So let's sing and worship to the Lord.